Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Harriet Lyon about her book titled Memory and the Dissolution of the Monasteries in Early Modern England, published by Cambridge University Press. This book does, I think, some things that are kind of obvious from the title and some things that are very intriguing from the title because it does look at the dissolution of the monasteries in early modern England, but also pokes at that. Where did we get that idea and that story of kind of what the capital D dissolution of the capital M monasteries was? Where did that story actually come from? And to be honest, despite having learnt this story myself in school, um, I did not know how we got that story. And I found it fascinating to unpick and read about. So Harriet, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. So uh, I am currently a historian and academic working at the University of Cambridge uh, and specifically at Christ's College, where I direct studies in history. And in a way, there's a kind of um, simple answer about how I came to this book, which is that it's uh, the book of my PhD thesis, which is common as a, as a first book. And I realised actually this morning that that means it's been with me in one form or another for a decade at this point. Um, I came to the project that's at the, the core of it really, I think, through the generosity of other people, actually. I, I knew when I was a, a master's student that I loved early modern history and Reformation history. And I'd been writing about uh, themes related to religion and providence and science and monstrosity, all of which was very interesting, but I, I felt was kind of finished with the with the master's. And as I was thinking about doing a PhD, kind of two very fortunate things happened. One was that, was that the historian of um, Protestantism and the Reformation, Alec Ryrie, did an extremely generous thing, which is that he wrote in History Today, I think, the magazine, that someone ought to write a new history of the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, it's a very generous thing of someone to, to give that prompt without doing it themselves. And the second thing was that my um, prospective PhD supervisor, Alex Walsham, was then beginning a project of her own in collaboration with Brian Cummings at the University of York uh, about memory and the Reformation. And so although I was never formally a a part of that project, it was um, formative in shaping my own kind of intellectual trajectory through the PhD. And so I began really with this sense that the dissolution was something worth 
writing about. Um, there'd been no major monograph studies of the dissolution for, for 50 years or so at the time I began the project. And then I was very influenced by this trend in um, the way history was being done around me, which was to think about memory and legacies, to look at how an event um, evolved over the long durée. And that really excited me, I think. I've never been the sort of historian who wants to just study four years, you know, the dissolution between 1536 and, and 1540. That didn't hold as much interest for me as the idea that we might project forwards and see how far we could take that story. Thank you for that introduction. Um, and I think also setting up some key aspects of the book, as you said, it's not about kind of a tiny four-year period, um, but about the larger picture. So speaking of that sort of, you know, there hasn't there hadn't been a book written on this in a while. There were new ways of looking at it. There was a longer way of looking at it. What is the myth that you're busting in this book? I think there are there are two related myths. The the first is that the dissolution was only ever the end of a, a story, a story about medieval Catholicism already in decline. Uh, and the dissolution was the moment at which it went out um, with a whimper, not a bang, I suppose. And the related myth, and I think the reason we often think that, is because there is this uh, pervasive idea in the sources from the time, but also in much more modern studies, that the dissolution was painless, easy to achieve, primarily bureaucratic, a kind of institutional reorganisation, uh, barely worthy of much comment beyond the fact that it happened. Yeah, those are... Those sound like some myths. Um, nothing, no process is ever that easy. <laughs> so that alone should have tipped us off. In terms of then busting those myths and answering those questions kind of more properly, um, can you talk a little bit about how you do this in terms of that time period you decided on and the sources you use? Sure. So I had a fairly obvious starting point, I guess, which was the 1530s, the Henrician Reformation, the moment of dissolution. And although I, I glance backwards to the medieval traditions that informed ideas about monasticism, um, I nevertheless had this fairly strong 1536 starting point. The question, of course, you know, if you're going to write a study about memory and legacies of of how far you take that is an interesting one. In the end, I decided that sort of roughly two centuries taking me from the early 16th century to the early 18th century would be both suitable and manageable. Um, by going that far, it gets us, you know, several generations from the dissolution, so well out of a world in which people remembered the dissolution at first hand and into that shaped by what um, we might call cultural or collective memory, the kind of memory that's handed down, that's shaped by media, so by images, objects, texts, as well as by kind of told recollections. And I think... I also wanted to, to anticipate, but not totally 
um, delve into some of the trends that are relevant here in the 18th and 19th centuries and beyond. So um, romanticism, an interest in the Gothic, in the picturesque, all of that is really interesting, but that's the next part of the, the story. So I stop at a point when I think the dissolution of the monasteries, the event has really crystallized for people um, in a way that actually I hope might help inform studies of those later movements. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And I actually want to pick up on that kind of crystallizing idea because we've both been using the word dissolution. Um, It's kind of obviously a key word for this. It's in the title of the book as well. Uh, But I want to make sure listeners are aware of something that doesn't really come across in the audio format, but I think is an important point uh, that's worth raising. In the book, you write the word dissolution in lowercase even if maybe traditionally we see it as dissolution, capital D of the monasteries, capital M in, you know, school textbooks. Mm. Can you talk us through that decision? Sure. Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to write about the process by which the dissolution became that event we know from school textbooks, from popular history, from, from all sorts of places. And, um, I needed a way of indicating that, I think, visually to the reader. You know, you highlighted that here talking, we we can't hear it. But um, it was important for my reader to see that process at at work. Um, I should probably acknowledge here that that the period itself has, you know, non-standardised spelling, non-standardised capitalization. So what I'm not seeking to imply is that you know, in the 1530s, they use dissolution with a lowercase d. And then by the late 17th century, they consistently wrote it with capitals. That's not the case. But what I think my choice to, to both abandon and, and then draw in the, the capitalized version, dissolution of the monasteries, tries to achieve is to capture a sense that during the dissolution itself, A, outright suppression was not a a foregone conclusion by any means. B, although they did use the word dissolution, they used it interchangeably with other things, um, suppressing, giving up, putting down. And so the vocabulary that we use to understand this episode is the product of a later generation. And it's the product, I think, of, of what the sociologist Philip Abrams once described as an event is a happening to which cultural significance has been assigned. And for me, transitioning through the book to, to thinking about dissolution of the monasteries with capital letters was an attempt to show that process at work, that process of cultural significance being assigned in hindsight, usually, and as was the case here. I think that's a really useful sort of intervention. um, And I'm glad we've sort of covered it early on in this so that, you know, listeners can keep that in mind as we continue our discussion. With that, I suppose, as my final sort of foundational, like, how do we even think about this topic question? Can we get into kind of the, you know, what actually happened and how did people interpret it? So starting off kind of at the earliest part of the chronology, can you walk us through how the dissolution evolved from 
something that was at least purportedly about rooting out corruption and religious houses to actually being the abolishment of monasticism more broadly? Uh, it's it's a good question, and in in a way, I think the the answer is more complicated than uh, than we might think. Um, surveys of the monasteries begin around 1535 because the previous year uh, the royal supremacy has been enacted making Henry VIII head of the church as well as head of state so now with a power to tax the church so this is a policy grounded in an attempt to work out how much these institutions are worth. What the visitors find on their journey around the monasteries is in reality a, a, a mixed picture of standards and, and behaviour in the religious houses. But there's certainly a great deal of reporting about corruption, about less than ideal practices. There's a hugely colourful correspondence that talks about uh, the frequency with which these commissioners find drunkenness, vice, sexual immorality, gambling, all sorts of, of kind of morally shocking behaviours. And so in 1536, in a, in a move that's um, almost certainly to do with getting some wealth out of the monasteries, but which is strongly justified in terms of this language of corruption, uh, the Henrician government issues uh, an act that's supposed to just dissolve small religious houses, um, those worth less than £200 a year, with a view that the people in those institutions could just be moved into bigger houses, a kind of efficiency drive, if you like. Quite when the official policy changes is, is not clear, but it's certainly true that by 1537-1538, there are dis dissolutions taking place um, that well exceed the bounds of that 1536 Act. You know, much bigger houses are, are falling. And during this period, too, there is a widespread um, and very vigorous campaign against monastic corruption, things like um, the abbots of houses being forced to disavow their relics in public, wild stories about the sort of iniquitous behaviour of, of monks and, and nuns. And then for me, the really striking thing is that at the point when this becomes legally a wholesale dissolution, so no longer just a, a pruning of the monasteries, but their outright suppression, the government takes an entirely different tone. So there's a second act in 1539, and that is devoid of all of the colourful language of earlier accounts of, of corruption. Um, and in fact, it, it uses what I think is an interesting phrase. So in, in the autumn of 1539, they say, they formally announce that all of the said late monasteries, that's their phrase, said late monasteries, um, have been suppressed. The implication being that it's already happened. It's kind of, oh, look, all the monasteries have gone. And in fact, some of them function into the spring of 1540. So I suppose my, my view there is that having begun in a, a kind of um, big campaign against monastic corruption, 
At the point where it becomes a wholesale policy of dissolution, Henry VIII and his government are much less keen to make a big deal out of it. And that's quite important, I think, for the for the story I try to tell in the book. It, yeah, exactly. That, that That's, in fact, what I'd like to ask you about is kind of, now that we have a better idea of sort of what happened or how it evolved, what was the government's sort of how much of a big deal were they trying to make it? What was the story they were trying to put out about what was happening? And to what extent did that narrative stick? Mm. So I have to be a little bit careful here because what I don't want to imply at any point while we're talking is that Henry VIII or Thomas Cromwell or anyone in his government had... um, a totally pre-planned, concerted propaganda campaign that they intended to shape memories of the dissolution for centuries to come. Um, It's less thought through than that and more ad hoc, definitely. But the legacy of the the kind of um, Henrician polemic of the period has been absolutely huge, partly because those are the obvious records for writing about the dissolution. Um, Famously, the historian Geoffrey Elton once uh, kind of coined the term Tudor revolution in government to describe this period. The paperwork of the dissolution is absolutely massive. And so anyone wanting to study it quite logically goes to those collections um, in the National Archives, in the British Library, indeed, where as part of the the Cotton Manuscript series, it's one of the foundational, um, it's in one of the foundational collections in the, the British Library. And those sources emphasize the the key themes in a way of, of the story I just told. So they are strong on Catholic and monastic corruption and on triumph over that corruption, which later uh, will sort of be moulded into a sense of Protestant triumph, even though uh, Henry VIII's church itself is so ambiguous that we tend not to use the word Protestant to to describe it, even in the 1530s and, and 40s. But also a sense that monasticism died in 1540, and that really that was just the coda to a story of medieval religious corruption. Um, It's striking to me, for instance, that the government never sought to commemorate the dissolution of the monasteries officially in ways that Tudor governments did in other cases. So, um, we still uh, we still celebrate, for instance, this is a slightly later one, um, the failure of the gunpowder plot and that sense of Protestant triumph over Catholicism in 1605. Uh, Elizabeth I's government commemorated the failure of the Armada. Um, Henry VIII, no one in that period really is suggesting that they have a national day to commemorate the dissolution. And I think that's part of... Um, the desire to forget the dissolution, or at least to see it as definitively over, as no longer relevant after 1540. So 
that's what the government is trying to put across. Um, to what extent was this contested and by whom? So it's contested from its earliest days, really, but and, and from both ends of the, the confessional spectrum, Catholic and reformist, but always in a world in which it's quite dangerous to do so. Um, opposing the Tudor government is a risky thing to do. And of course, now Henry VIII is head of the church as well as head of state. Any religious resistance is effectively treason. So those monks and, and nuns who do vociferously resist um, meet a, a violent end, really. The London Carthusians famously sort of collectively resist, and I think 17 of them are, are martyred between 1535 and 1537. Um, other examples slightly later, the abbots of Colchester, Glastonbury and Reading. The abbot of Glastonbury is hanged, drawn and quartered on Glastonbury Tor uh, in public, sort of the ultimate kind of um, lesson to the community that's grown up around that abbey and is now seeing it demolished. There's quieter resistance too at that Catholic end of the spectrum. Uh, soon after houses are dissolved, they're often dismantled, both by agents of the regime and by local people. And the motives there are interesting to unpack. You know, some of them are clearly reformist. Some of them are out for material gain, to use the wood and lead and stone in new structures. Um, but some of them clearly are trying to keep parts of these buildings safe in the hope that if Catholicism is restored, it can all be pieced back together. Uh, there's also in what's really the only big rebellion related to this policy in 1536, there's a rising in Yorkshire, um, a real sort of Catholic stronghold. That too is, is fairly quickly suppressed and it's, its leader executed. And actually very evocatively, um, said leader, a man called um, Robert Ask, a lawyer, at his trial in 1537, he talked about um, a time when the abbeys had stood as a time distinct from his own. And of course, that's well before the wholesale dissolution is announced in 1539. So you can really see how people on the ground had a sense that, that this was a, a highly destructive act long before the official record shows it to be true. So that's the, the Catholic or, or traditionalist conservative end of the spectrum. Uh, at the other end, there are a growing number of reformers who totally support um, the effective abolition of the monastic institution. They believe in the stories about Catholic corruption um, and they want to see a reformed church. The problem with what Henry VIII is, is doing for them is that so much of that church wealth and property goes into the hands of the crown, into the hands of the nobility, into basically private hands. Whereas they would have liked all of this wealth and you know, riches to go back into the church and to be a, um, a sort of foundational move in creating a Protestant church of England. Um, 
these are both threads of thinking about the dissolution that continue across the 16th and 17th centuries. Catholics, unsurprisingly, always view the dissolution as a fairly disastrous moment in the history of the Reformation. What's really interesting to me and and what the book is primarily about is how increasingly new generations of Protestants become more and more anxious about the dissolution, picking up those ideas of the early evangelical reformist critics to such an extent that they turn the dissolution into not so much a great triumph, but actually one of the most problematic episodes in a Reformation project that on the whole they applaud. Thank you for taking us through kind of the Protestant and Catholic sides of this. I think that's a really interesting aspect of kind of how this is thought about protested sort of the different things going on um it's not as straightforward as kind of assuming that you know protestants say yay catholics say no right (laughs) Uh, that would be way too simplistic i think given what you've told us so far we're kind of getting to the point now of that sort of capitalized version right dissolution Mm. capital d monasteries capital m when exactly did we get to that point and and why do you think it's at this moment that this construction happens Mm. It's certainly, so, so it's tricky to, to date very precisely, partly for the, the reasons I said before about how as much as I would love for early modern people to shift between the lower and upper cases, uh, it's a, a bit sort of weirder than that. They, they have um, very non-standardised spelling conventions. But certainly by the mid-17th century, there is a a strong tendency to refer to the dissolution of the monasteries as an event, knowing its consequences, rather than as this kind of um, long and kind of ambiguous process of reform and suppression, uh, those two phases that Henry VIII had really emphasised. You know, we, we remember neither the reformation of the monasteries nor... Um, the giving up of the monasteries, which in a way is, I think, what Henry VIII would have wanted. There's a lot of talk in 1539 and 40 about how it's the religious orders who, you know, are, are so aware of their own corruption that they're giving themselves up. They're giving these places to the to the crown. By the 17th century, people are talking about the dissolution as an event, not in these phases anymore. I think a significant factor is that there's been a change of dynasty. So from 1603, the Stuarts are on the English throne. And that makes critique of the Tudors um, in print and in public a little bit more possible. It's also the case that in the 17th century, we're really talking about people who hadn't actually witnessed or experienced the dissolution and its immediate consequences. They hadn't, you know, if they were noble families, they hadn't themselves been involved in the dissolution. They didn't have the same kind of um, 
uncomfortable feelings perhaps about having collaborated. I think there is a degree of silence amongst people earlier in the period because they had been involved in the dismantling of this institution. Um, and in fact, there's a, uh, in, in the sort of late 16th century, there's a, a cleric called Michael Sherbrooke who asks his father about his involvement in the dissolution of Roche Abbey in, in Yorkshire. And he says, you know, did you do it because you hate Catholicism or you hated the monks? And the father says, no, um, I did it because I saw everybody else doing it. And I stood to gain, so so why would I not have have been involved? And that kind of sentiment makes people in the 17th century um, really anxious. An attack on institutions like monasteries, you know, they may have been corrupt, but they were also consecrated ground. And the idea that you might profane sacred space and then take the wealth and not even give it to the church is something that creates a lot of anxiety. So actually, when we read um, Protestant histories of the 16th century that come out in the 17th century, you get a strong sense of the dissolution as an event. And it's almost always in a critical light. By the early 18th century, you've got someone like Brown Willis, who um, engaged in a lot of antiquarian studies, who's writing that the dissolution of the monasteries was the chief blemish of the Reformation. So it's really a story of how Protestantism came to feel that the dissolution was very problematic and it's coined in that sense rather than in um, an atmosphere of celebration. So then does this continue to be um, an aspect that kind of Protestants and Catholics remember to some extent differently or is this when we see sort of kind of regardless of your affiliation there's a set way of remembering it? Mm. So I mean the the weird thing in many ways is is that this is a rare example in Reformation history where the similarities between the Catholic and the Protestant perspective are perhaps greater than the differences. By the 17th century, these um, Protestant commentators are often articulating um, the kind of laments and regret that had been apparent in much earlier Catholic or sort of conservative nostalgic writing. There's that famous um, uh, line in in Shakespeare's sonnet about the bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. That sense of melancholy um, looking at the the physical remnants of, of these sites. Of course, there are differences. Both Catholics and Protestants are looking back on the dissolution, not actually as just a historical project, but as part of trying to work out um, the future of the church, really. So Catholicism is having to grapple with the idea that if there's ever going to be a Catholic restoration, that too has to involve reform. They have to create a kind of vibrant Catholic church. And there's a question for them about whether monasticism ought to return as part of that. And memories of the dissolution and and that powerful language of monastic corruption feed that debate. 
for Protestants, the question is more... Um, the Church of England, after Henry VIII, has this um, uh, kind of rocky trajectory where it goes through lots of different phases in terms of exactly how Protestant it is, um, how ceremonial it is, the different types of Protestantism that exist in the 17th century. Uh, the interesting thing there is that really... Um, Really, all of those groups look back on the dissolution with, with some distrust. Many Protestants prefer to see the beginning of the Reformation in the reign of Edward VI, who succeeded Henry VIII and had a much more radical Reformation than they do with a policy like the dissolution. Even though, interestingly for us, I mean, talking, talking now... The dissolution of the monasteries is one of the kind of hallmark episodes of the Reformation. It's one that people are, are kind of very familiar with. And if you talk to them about the Reformation, it's the thing that sticks in their mind. Um, 17th century Protestants were so anxious about it, they didn't really like the idea that it was the beginning of the Reformation at all. Hmm. That is interesting to see kind of what our expectations are. You know, we might think that Protestants and Catholics are completely far apart and that one of them agrees more with us now. And it's like, actually, both of those things are just completely not true, which is why it's so helpful to have a book that properly goes into it. Can I ask about um, one aspect of this kind of remembering um, and what it means and trying to work out what it means, I think? We haven't really talked about the physicality of the dissolution of the monasteries, the fact um, you mentioned earlier, a kind of, you know, well, some people wanted this because then they could use the, the stuff, right? The lead, the building stone, etc. But there is kind of an element to this that it's not just something that is being worked out in terms of, oh, there's no longer bells going or, oh, there's no longer a community place that we go to for certain things. It's not like they vanish from the landscape. There's now ruins. There's now secular palaces that used to be abbeys. There's like visual things you can see walking around that remind you of this all the time. How does that play into these debates about what happened and how they're remembered? I think the physical sites both... Um... Uh, in some sense, to go back to myth-busting, uh, created a myth that I'd like to bust and then looked at in a, a more rounded sense, really make this process of um, remembering sort of physical and, and tangible. So the myth relates to monastic ruins, which, I mean spring I think to all of our minds when we think about the dissolution not least because many of them still stand as uh, kind of public heritage monuments today the interesting thing about ruins is I mean those those abbeys and and convents they've looked like that since virtually the 1530s 1540s deliberately Henry VIII's government moved in to take the roofs off, the windows out. I mean, those materials were valuable, but it's also more than that. It's to do with preventing people moving back in and kind of repopulating the, the monasteries. And combined with processes of iconoclasm that operate in the early Reformation, we have ruins 
virtually from the moment of dissolution itself. And so they are fascinating because they are both of a historical moment and they're very much out of time. They've been a consistent feature in the landscape for centuries and they're still there. And looking at them, one does feel that evocative sense of something lost, the kind of decay of medieval grandeur. And, you know, viewing those ruins was something that was really forging the nostalgia of the the 17th century Protestants, not for monasticism per se, but for the kind of glorious medieval structures that had been founded by their ancestors, lay ancestors, as a monument to their own piety, even if their belief in Catholicism was misguided. So ruins are a really important part of the story. But actually, uh, when I when I was doing this part of the project, the, the part about physical sites, I wanted to get away from the idea that all the dissolution left behind was ruins. They play nicely into that narrative we talked about right at the beginning about the dissolution being an end point, about it being destructive, the demolition of something. I became much more interested actually in those properties that, as you've already suggested, were converted. The idea that the dissolution wasn't just destructive, it was also creative. And that for the um, for the families who occupied the new houses built out of abbeys, or whose um, town meeting place kind of public hall had been constructed out of a, a monastery, or where a monastic church simply was turned into a parish church. Um, I became interested in those stories. About two thirds of all former monastic properties were converted rather than destroyed or left in in ruin. Um, And that raises a whole host of interesting questions. You know, what is it to repurpose um, a sacred site for secular uses? What was the experience of living in a former monastery? Um, as we might talk about in a bit, uh, there are some significant anxieties around the idea of, of occupying um, a space that was sacred and just living in it. And it changed this idea of a converted landscape. Um, it did affect people's view on the dissolution itself. You know, for um, people who profited from it, this was the beginning of their story, their kind of rise in family fortunes, and not just the end of a tale about medieval Catholicism. And I think the, the kind of other thing that's important about physical sites is that they are physical, they are tangible, they um, they exist in the landscape for, for all to see and, and interact with. So the fact that the dissolution had a physical dimension really made the Reformation feel real to a lot of people. And that's actually why I think, although um, 17th century commentators didn't like looking at the dissolution as the origin of their movement, um, 
I really think the dissolution looks like that moment where the world changed, um, where the medieval, I suppose, became the early modern. Hmm. There's a lot that I think is, as you said, raising lots of interesting questions there. Um, But I do want to pick up on this idea of kind of the anxiety of living in a formerly sacred space. How did people deal with that? Part of the answer is that I, I wish we knew more about how people dealt with it. As you might imagine, um, the kinds of, of sources that are available here, and you know, if, if you're going to move beyond those um, standard collections on the dissolution, the legal acts, the correspondence, land leases, things like that, you have to be slightly creative and look towards history writing, chronicles, topographical writing and sort of traces of of local and and oral tradition, um, you still, even if you're looking at that sort of material, anxiety is something people, uh, and particularly the individuals who who live in converted monasteries are are quite um, uh, sort of, it's not something they enjoy writing or talking about, I suppose. So you have to look for small traces. Most commonly, I think, you find it in um, learned narratives about sacrilege, so this the sin of profaning that which is holy. And then in its uh, the, the sort of more popular cousin of that kind of narrative is the ghost story, basically. Uh, there are loads of examples of monastic, former monastic properties, whereby the mid to late 17th century, people are concerned that the ghosts of monks and nuns live on as a kind of punishment for the sacrilege involved in the dissolution. Um, Netley Abbey is the one of the most famous examples where a um, ghostly figure of a monk, I think in a dream, warns uh, a carpenter working on the window to stop because he's further profaning sacred space. He ignores this warning and the window falls on him and and crushes him to death. And this is widely kind of um, reported and printed as an episode uh, that shows the kind of long negative legacies of the dissolution. I wouldn't want to totally overstate the extent of the anxiety. Some families get around it or or make themselves feel better, I suppose, by retaining the church part of the monastic property and converting that into a parish church for um, people to come and, and, and worship in. So there is probably a distinction between choosing to dismantle the church, the actual consecrated ground, and build something new on that, and making something new, a new house out of the refectory or the dormitory. Um, But this is something people are increasingly worried about, and it's something you see increasingly commonly in sources from the late 17th century, again, perhaps anticipating that Gothic tradition in literature, which will love the idea of of ruins and and fragmented abbeys. 
No, it, it really does. Um, and interesting to think about this as being potentially one of the kind of impetuses for that later on. I'd like to ask, um, well, there's one thing I want to pick up from an answer you've given us recently, but I think it'll be a good kind of bringing it all together question. So I'll hold off on that for a moment and instead ask first um, to kind of talk explicitly about something we've been, I suppose, kind of mentioning, but not fully, which is that there's one element to this seems to very much be kind of a local versus national memory thing going on. We've kind of got the government narrative. We've got kind of big communities. If we're talking about, you know, all the Catholics or all the Protestants, but we also have this very local thing about like, okay, but what about this particular site and how it was repurposed and what people think of that kind of repurposing versus another. So can you maybe help us understand um, more directly in what ways or for what reasons were there differences in memories if we think about kind of the local versus the national? Mm. This was a, a period in which people often referred to their county as their country, which should already say something about how significant local identity was. And in fact, I think when we talk about a, a national memory culture in this period, it does skew towards um, the sources, you know, the histories, the chronicles um, that are written by a, a more elite, learned community for each other, rather than a true kind of history that's accessible to all, as we, we might strive for today. I mean, the local memories of the dissolution, I, I mean, they are shaped by the fact that, as we've already said, the the kind of bones of the monasteries are still left there in their communities, either their ruins or their conversions, but they're still there. And a lot of um, even secular houses um, or meeting places made out of monasteries keep the original monastic name. Um, Blackfriars is a good example of of this, you can probably think of the the region in London, but also any number of examples where houses take that name because of its former monastic history. And I think there's a sense too in in local communities which is uh, not apparent in the bigger national story that actually this is a moment that looms large in the lives of people and in people's understanding of their family history. I'll never forget, I mean, one of the the best um, uh, sources I came across as I was researching for the the book was pasted in the back of uh, a fairly standard antiquarian survey of different parts of the country. It was recording heraldic crests and all sorts of all sorts of things like that and then in the back upside down was stuck um a short letter relating sort of one family's experience of the dissolution very much in that anxious mode that i said is so rare to find in in this kind of source and it was essentially that i think probably slightly under the influence of alcohol um, in the mid-17th century, uh, um, a gentleman had been talking with some friends and had been persuaded basically to 
to relive his family's history of the dissolution, which involved his ancestors going to the local nunnery um, and trying, I mean, the, the phrase used is trying to debauch the inhabitants um, so effectively, I, I think, to engage in a sort of programme of sexual assault on the, the nuns who lived there. And when they resisted and, you know, threw these awful men from the premises, they put around the story that they'd done it anyway. And so that led to a widespread view that the nunnery was corrupt, exactly as the Henrician government was saying, and it was duly dissolved. And I had this source from, you know, more than a century later, expressing kind of horror and anguish that this had happened. And not just, you know, that kind of anxiety about the policy of the dissolution that we've spent so much time talking about, but also that it was an episode in people's lives. And so when I when I wrote the book, I, I wanted to have a chapter that tried to deal with some of that material and you know much more positive stories about families who had gained, who'd really come up in the world as a result of acquiring monastic wealth. But I think it makes it human. You know, often when we talk about cultural memory, national memory, collective memory, we slightly lose the sense that individuals have their own views on the past and then they bring their own experiences to bear on the past. And so I think by looking at the effects of the dissolution on a local level, we can at least try and get at some of those stories, even if as a historian it's much more difficult to do so. Mm. Very interesting to think about. Um, and I appreciate kind of how you take us through sort of your process as well and the, the how we even figure these things out, because that's, I think, a really interesting part of this as well. Picking up on the thread that I said I'd pick up on earlier um, and kind of, I think, bringing us in some ways to a close on this book, you mentioned um, briefly the idea that we can, in some ways, use the dissolution of the monasteries to help us kind of make sense of, well, when does the medieval end and when does the early modern start? Can you maybe walk us through how your research and your book helps us think about that divide? Of course. Um, I'll start by saying that, that there are many ways of, of periodizing history and no one method is, is necessarily correct. You know, we could choose to begin the early modern period in 1485 with the accession of Henry VII. We could choose to begin it in 1500 because it's the start of the 16th century. And there'd be good arguments for, for um, doing both of those things. The, the 17th century Protestants I described earlier, some of them might have quite, you know, the, the learned kind of community might have liked to begin it in the reign of Edward VI because they could more clearly see the origins of their church there. So partly I, I, I kind of came to the, the idea about, you know, in what ways is the dissolution a marker of the break between the medieval and um, the early modern, because I was interested in thinking through these different models of periodization. And one thing I, I noticed that a lot of the, the um, sources I was reading 
perhaps precisely because of those physical remnants, the sense that this was the the Reformation made tangible, and the sense that the dissolution had so profoundly changed local life. I I think you said this earlier, um, these are not just spiritual centres, they're markets and hospitals and schools and landowners and employers, so they have a vital social role in, in local communities. For all of these reasons, when they're dismantled, which they are fairly quickly in a sort of four-year period, 1536 to 40, that's a sign that that the world is different because it looks different. And in a way, it sounds different. You know, the the bells aren't, aren't ringing anymore and the patterns and rhythms of everyday life are different. And that idea gets picked up, I think, in in some of the the more historical writing I look at in the book. There's a a chronicler I really like called Edmund Howes. He's writing in the early 17th century. And he has an idea that every 500 years, there's some great alteration. He calls it a revolution in time. Um, I don't know why it has to be 500 years. He's just decided that, that that's how the historical, you know, how historical change works. And he sees, you know, not the Reformation, not the accession of the Tudors as the key moment, but the dissolution of the monasteries. The, the previous revolution for him had been the Norman conquest. Um, so you can see that he's almost... Um, conflating those two in terms of levels of of seriousness. He thinks the world changed at the dissolution of the monasteries. And so taking that idea up, I mean, my, my book ends on this note that perhaps the dissolution is a marker of the divide between the medieval and the early modern. I think that's less something I want to argue as a certainty and more offer as a kind of provocation. Um, We can choose to periodize in many different ways, but I suspect if we could go back and we could talk to people in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, I think they might think of the dissolution as the moment that changed the world. Hmm. Very interesting, and I think kind of a good way to end our discussion about the book. So thank you for giving us that provocation, giving us that thing to take away and think about. Um, I do have a final question, though, if you don't mind. Uh, As you mentioned at the beginning, this book, this research has been with you quite a long time. Uh, It's now over, obviously. It's been over for a bit. So is there anything you've been working on since, anything you're currently working on, looking to work on, um, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic that you'd like to preview or highlight to our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, And thank you for allowing me the opportunity. Um, So in the wake of of the book about memory and the dissolution, the first thing I I wanted to explore um, was the concept of nostalgia, which has come up a little bit as we've been talking in relation to monastic ruins. And in the book, I I think I'm probably a bit too negative on the value of nostalgia for thinking about the dissolution. I I was so desperate to reject um, 
the idea that the only possible physical remnants of the monasteries were ruins, that I was a bit mean about the value of nostalgia. So I undertook a small project after that, which really looked at nostalgia as um, as a historical category. It's a way, a kind of mode of remembering, so it fits with the themes of of the book, um, but it's also a, an emotional way of of remembering. Uh, and with a with a colleague, Alex Walsham, I published a, a volume on nostalgia in the early modern world last year. That I think was a, a bridge to what is probably my next project, which is in its kind of very earliest stages, thinking about. Um, time, temporalities, and actually periodization and early modernity. So in a way, that provocation I I offer at the end of of the book is something that I'm actively looking to explore as I continue my research. Um, You know, we periodize in all sorts of ways, but how did people in the 16th and 17th centuries see themselves in time? I think that's Mm. that's my next question. Well, that's fascinating. So hopefully that becomes a book and we can have you back to tell us all about it. Um, But in the meantime, of course, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Memory and the Dissolution of the Monasteries in Early Modern England, published by Cambridge University Press. Harriet, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. (laughs) 